I'm Kelly Cervantes, and this is Seizing Life, a weekly podcast produced by CURE, Citizens United for Research in Epilepsy. In today's episode, we will be talking about post-traumatic epilepsy with a special focus on its impact on veterans. CURE has a rich history supporting research for post-traumatic epilepsy, PTE, including research on the role of inflammation and potential indicators of risk for epilepsy following head injury. Post-traumatic epilepsy can develop years after a traumatic brain injury and is a major concern for those in the military. Over 40% of combat troops who suffer severe traumatic brain injury are at risk of developing PTE, which can deeply impact their recovery process and create lifelong challenges. In fact, CURE is the recipient of a sizable grant from the Department of Defense to support further research on PTE. To help you understand more about the role PTE plays in traumatic brain injuries, I'm excited to have Dr. Jordan Grafman on the show today. Dr. Grafman is a professor at Northwestern University in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation and the Department of Psychiatry for the Feinberg School of Medicine. He is also the Director and Brain Injury Research Chief for the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab. He brings his wealth of experience to help us better understand how traumatic brain injury can lead to post-traumatic epilepsy. Dr. Grafman, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Of course. So I want to start by getting to know you a little bit and what drew you to post-traumatic epilepsy research and the work that you've done for veterans. Do you have a a vested interest in uh, neurological conditions? Well, when I started, I was uh, going into the Air Force as an officer and a researcher. And I was assigned at the time to Walter Reed Army Medical Center because the Vietnam head injury study was just starting. And it was starting because a neurologist at the NIH at the time, Bill Cavanis, had uh, knowledge that post-traumatic epilepsy that's caused by penetrating brain injuries results in a significant proportion of those people who suffered the penetrating brain injuries having epilepsy. And he was interested in the mechanisms of epilepsy. So he persuaded neurosurgeons in Vietnam, in mass units, to send back materials indicating usually who survived uh, so that they could be followed up later to determine how many of them developed epilepsy. So in a way, I lucked into that program at the time. It was very fortunate because within uh, the study of brain function, studying people who've had injuries uh, after combat, brain injuries, uh, has led to a whole wealth of new information about how the brain works. So it was, uh, I was very fortunate to be on the study. And it was a team, a team uh, led by a neurologist, Dr. Andre Salazar. I was the head of neuropsychology on the team, I'm a cognitive neuroscientist. And we studied these vets about 15 years after their original injury in oh, Vietnam. Wow. It's actually encouraging for me to hear that there was sort of a vested interest in this and that, you know, for decades now that, that post-traumatic epilepsy has been uh, studied. I feel like there is, um, sometimes there can be such a lag in epilepsy research. And so it's actually, I personally, I find that interesting that 
that this research has been going on, although on the other side, that still so much more needs to be learned. It's and, true. Um, it's true. You, you know, one of the, as I mentioned, one of the features of having a penetrating uh, brain injury, which is usually due to a low-velocity shell fragment penetrating the skull and the dura and entering the brain, that usually only occurs during combat. So uh, if there's no combat, we're at peace, we're happy, we're at peace, you're not going to get the cohorts, the population that you want to study necessarily until there's another conflict, unfortunately. But when it does happen, you have so many of the veterans who were in combat who had brain injuries having epilepsy that it allows you to study it in a lot more detail, as opposed to closed head injuries which is sort of either your head, like a concussion in sports, for example, mm -hmm. or is typical in car accidents. You can still have seizures, but the percentage of people who have seizures after closed head injury is much lower, particularly mild and moderate. It gets a little bit higher with severe closed head injuries because often in those injuries, there's bleeding in the brain, uh, or there can even be a skull fracture with maybe some skull fragments going into the brain. All of that increases the likelihood of having epilepsy after uh, even a closed traumatic brain injury. But uh, you get double the numbers with penetrating. That makes so much sense then why um, the statistics are what they are that you see in these veterans, this um, higher percentage of the post-traumatic epilepsy because you, the, that part of our population is at such a higher risk of having those That's penetrating right. brain injuries. You're talking about you know the difference between the the penetrating and um, the closed head injuries. Are there any other trends that you have found with veterans versus um, you know the the regular population with traumatic brain injuries um, that sort of sets the veterans apart when. Mm -hmm. um, for being at risk for PTE? So anybody who has a traumatic brain injury is at higher risk than somebody having a spontaneous seizure but doesn't have any prior traumatic brain injury. So you're at increased risk just having a traumatic brain injury, but the odds are quite small if it's a mild or moderate closed traumatic brain injury. The, as we talked about, mm -hmm. the odds go way up if you have a penetrating brain injury or if you have a severe closed traumatic brain injury just because of, in that case, you have bleeding in the brain, for example. So it just raises the risk. What have you learned from studying the Vietnam veterans that is helping with the wars that occurred in Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria and um, that we're able to use now for our veterans. Right, so let me take even a step back before that, before sort of medical applications, mm -hmm. things that are learned. Uh, on the basis of our Vietnam head injury study, both the military and the Veterans Administration opened specialized brain injury units. They didn't exist before we did our study, and Dr. Salazar, the neurologist on our study, along with civilians, uh, petitioned the Congress to give the money so that these centers could be opened. So that gives people who have traumatic brain injury, at least while they're in the military, places to go that, where they'll see expertise mm. 
on post-traumatic epilepsy, on traumatic brain injury, rather than being shuttled around to any uh, person uh, in the medical health care system in either the military or the VA. So that was the first step. So what we also learned, uh, for example, we've learned many things. I'll give you one example. Uh, often uh, when somebody had a penetrating traumatic brain injury in Vietnam, they were put on the lantern to try to prevent seizures from occurring. And uh, unfortunately, it had no effect. So using, using anticonvulsant medication early on may be somewhat helpful, say in the first week, but after that, it doesn't have much help in preventing the onset. Now, they obviously have, are, are helpful in controlling the frequency or the severity of epilepsy, uh, but not the occurrence. So we, we were able to substantiate that as well. Has there been an increase or a decrease in the percentage of post-traumatic epilepsy? Or is it, is it a constant from you know, 50 years ago to now? There's been no change. None whatsoever. No, it's the same percentage. That's horribly frustrating, I'm sure, it's as, frustrating. as a researcher and a scientist. Well, it's frustrating, but it also points out the importance of dealing with the issue since mm -hmm. it's common and uh, there's been no change in its presentation across, co across conflicts. But the research studies are being done to try and see and find those preventative treatments that can try and, and stop Absolutely. Uh, I mean, there's across a range of kinds of studies. So for example, the first thing we, we noticed, and other people have substantiated this, having a family history of epilepsy, for example, doesn't make you more or less likely to have it after a traumatic brain injury. So that's, that's not really, that doesn't seem to be a big factor. The uh, amount of damage in the brain contributes up until the very largest sorts of amounts of damage. And in that case, sometimes people don't have epilepsy at all. So it's uh, it's a funny looking curve mm -hmm. if, you're, if you're trying to better understand the severity of the injury in penetrating. Because in, in penetrating brain injuries, we have the advantage of being able to estimate the total brain volume loss. In closed traumatic brain injuries, especially the mild to moderate traumatic brain injuries where less is known uh, about why just a small proportion of people have epilepsy after the mild to moderate traumatic brain injury. Mm -hmm. It's hard to estimate the, the amount of brain damage in those cases. Sure. Uh, it's a little bit easier uh, if it's a severe closed traumatic brain injury. So that's another kind of predictor. Uh, it's more predictive if you have a penetrating brain injury. Genetic predisposition, well, there are some genes that may play a role in, in the case of post-traumatic epilepsy. And those are genes that are often concerned with plasticity of the brain. They may be concerned with certain chemicals that are in the brain. For example, there are chemicals like glutamate, which are in the brain, that are very excitatory. They help, they help our brain be very active. And if you have the wrong variant of that gene, it makes you slightly more likely to have epilepsy. And in some, it makes sense in a way because if they're already excitatory and you have the wrong polymorphism for it, perhaps it, it, there's an overabundance of it, making it more likely you might have a seizure. Then of course there's other sorts of uh, issues that involve 
how the networks of the brain function. So part of the way we function, we have inhibition. And inhibition controls the activity of brain regions. And if you have damage to neurons that are interested in inhibiting abnormal functions, well then it makes it more likely that you might have excitatory activity in an area of the brain. There's lots of work going on now in immunology and neuroimmune functions because there's some evidence, and this is particularly true for closed traumatic brain injuries, that you can have abnormal microglia, these little cells uh, that damage, that eat up neurons, they're trying to get rid of the trash in the nervous system. They're overabundant uh, after traumatic brain injury, at least in some people, not in all people, but in some people. So there's a thought that if you help control that activity through various means, you might be able, if not to eliminate epilepsy or seizures, you might be able to better control the frequency and severity of them. Hi, this is Brandon from Citizens United for Research in Epilepsy, or CURE. To learn more about advances in our understanding of post-traumatic epilepsy, as well as the exciting new therapies being developed that may one day result in a cure, visit cureepilepsy.org forward slash PTE for more information. For this population that is um, experiencing PTE due to the, the TBI, are those seizures then more generalized? Are they more localized? Um, and then also can you speak to, um, is this kind of epilepsy more intractable or is it, is it more often treatable? So usually, uh, especially with penetrating traumatic brain injury or severe closed traumatic brain injury, the uh, first seizure is usually a generalized seizure. Now, there's been some discussion about that, that because people often don't witness the first seizure, it might be a partial to generalized seizure that often occurs. There's a focal onset. Uh, later, though, if it's a late seizure, then they're usually partial complex uh, seizures and not generalized seizures. Uh, and I might add that although most people who have uh, traumatic brain injuries who wind up having seizures may have uh, their first seizure, say, within five years of the event, uh, we, in our hands anyway, in our evaluations, because we followed our vets up until their 60s, uh, about 18% had their first seizure after 15 years. Oh my gosh. So it, the risk majority... doesn't go away. So you said the majority of them have it within the first five years. Even within the first year. Even Okay. So within the first year, five years, but it, the, the risk is always there. Even it is always years there. Later. And when they're in their 60s, which is now 45, 50 years after their original traumatic brain injury, about two-thirds are still on medication, anticonvulsant medication. Interesting. Um, and so then going back to... Um, is this a more treatable form of epilepsy or is this, is it as intractable as every other form? Is there, is there a greater success rate in treatment? Well, if you're asking whether medication helps control mm -hmm. their seizures where they're either not present, no, you don't see them anymore, or they're few, mm -hmm. yes, yes. And I think it's important to add, we have the advantage of following them their whole lives. I've known them since I was a kid almost. And what we see is that they manage to have fruitful and productive lives. 
and, uh, on the, from the outside, they don't look any different than uh, perhaps somebody looking at you or I. Are there certain medications, are there certain treatments that doctors have found work better for uh, PTE than might work for a generalized epilepsy? Are there um, like the go-to treatments that the doctors might go to, or is it a crapshoot just like everything else? Right, so I think what you said is correct. It's a crapshoot. They start on one medication, and if that doesn't work, they try another one, and the goal is, of course, to reduce the frequency and severity of seizures, and that was true for our vets, uh, much as it is true for whether it's children or adults uh, having their first seizure. You just want to prevent it, and you keep trying. There are common meds that are available, and those are the ones that are used. Is there exciting research on the horizon that's saying, you know what, let's go down this path, let's focus on this because maybe we can prevent the epilepsy from occurring if we know, you know, in these higher uh, at-risk populations? So the more you learn about the molecular mechanisms of epilepsy, the more you can develop, hopefully, treatments that target that. But we don't do whole genome genetic testing yet in every soul. Sure. We're not doing that. And there's lots of ethical issues involved with doing that. So we can't really do that when somebody enters the military. Although we can draw blood, we can find out about their genetic predisposition before they go into combat. But the military is not going to use that to eliminate people from going into combat. Of course not. Right. So, but, but. If you understand better the molecular mechanisms, and there's a lot of research to try to do that, then maybe you can t develop better drugs or better treatments to target uh, those mechanisms that are more likely to go awry with a traumatic brain injury. So that's one approach. Another approach, as we talked about before, is trying to better understand the, the brain's immune system. And there may be some differences in the brain's immune system from the body's immune system. And People didn't pay as much attention to that until the last 10 or 20 years, often now focusing attention on disorders other than epilepsy. But as a byproduct, we're going to learn a lot more about neuroimmune functions and abnormal neuroimmune functions after the traumatic brain injury occurs. And if we can control those a little bit better, that may also reduce the likelihood of somebody having epilepsy. So that that's hopeful. Fascinating. That's hopeful. And then, of course, with genes, there may be some genes that are not so much going to help predict who has epilepsy, but might tell you something about the brain's response to epilepsy. Now, if you can, and this is a little bit into the future, but if you can manipulate those genes in some way using techniques like CRISPR, mm -hmm. the new genetic techniques that allow you to edit the gene, then maybe that might be another way to help improve uh, people's likelihood of not having epilepsy after brain damage. Have you seen any differences um, in PTE based on the branch of the military that the uh, person is serving in or in where they are in combat? Are there um, certain branches, I guess, that are, are more likely to see higher rates of PTE? Sure, if you're a ground force, you're obviously more likely to see it than if you're in the Air Force or on a ship, on a boat. It can still happen for various reasons. If you're a ground force, then there are lots of ways uh, that could occur. You could be in a vehicle, there could be a roadside bomb, you could be thrown in the vehicle and hit your head against the surface, one of the surfaces of the cabin you're in, for example. That no doubt happens a lot 
uh, in those uh, circumstances where you have these roadside bombs. On the other hand, if you're, if you're in the bush, if you're in a mountain area and somebody fires a mortar and the mortar explodes upon uh, hitting the ground, then you're more likely to have potentially a penetrating brain injury from the fragments, which are a low velocity and won't kill you. Bullets tend to kill. Uh, so those kinds of shell fragments are, are what's going to injure people. Looking at sort of the, the comorbidities of PTE, it, do you see any correlations between PTSD and PTE? Epilepsy itself doesn't, in the case of traumatic brain injury, doesn't contribute any more to somebody having post-traumatic stress disorder. The reason that people do or don't experience PTSD after their, a traumatic brain injury is usually due to the combination of the exposure they had, the experience they had, and where the brain injury is. Because there's some brain injuries, uh, if they damage certain tissue, they lessen the likelihood, actually, of having PTSD. It's a paradoxical effect. That's fascinating. Do these vets experience the same stigma around their epilepsy? I'm assuming as anyone in the general public will. And, you know, have there been, um, has that stigma sort of been um, decreased over the years as we sort of see the same with PTSD? I feel like some of that stigma has, has been decreasing? Do you see that with PTE as well? I think they face the same issues as anybody in the civilian life would have if they had epilepsy. Mm -hmm. uh, they have to be careful about driving. They can't. You can drive if your epilepsy is controlled after mm -hmm. a few months and there's been no further uh, episodes depending on the state, right? There are different state laws, but uh, they, have, they have to deal with that right away. Uh, they have to, uh, in many cases, if you've had a combat-related traumatic brain injury, you're retired. And so the VA always has to make some decision about disability benefits. Mm. So that potentially can be an issue as, as uh, combat veterans navigate the VA system. Uh, not all of them are happy doing that, I might add. But uh, one of the advantages of us following people over their lifetime is we can provide them with letters, support, whatever they need. We've bonded with uh, the vets that we in particular have been seeing, which is why they came back in hundreds, in large numbers, uh, to be with us again because they felt we understood them, we cared about them, and we also cared about their spouses and families as well. I might add that we've done some recent studies and the burden of, when we ask caregivers, caregivers here, because they're all males, uh, are wives usually, mm. uh, sometimes friends, sometimes brothers, but usually wives. And they feel that their burden, they report a greater burden in caring for that combat vet who had traumatic brain injury uh, than caregivers or wives of vets who served in combat but never had a brain injury. And why do you think that is? Well, they have to navigate healthcare systems partly. That creates a little bit of a burden. They have to help that person. Usually if there's more of the brain that's damaged, there are more functional challenges because of uh, not being able to express yourself quite as well or not being able to reason quite as well and maybe some changes in mood state. All that contributes to a, a challenge mm -hmm. in, in navigating healthcare systems and life in general. And so the spouse, the caregiver, takes on a bigger role perhaps uh, than they ordinarily would. 
even in the case of somebody who went through combat and served in Vietnam. So it, it, there's an added effect, and particularly with epilepsy, because it reflects comorbidities, mm -hmm. as you were saying before, uh, other kinds of problems, then uh, it makes it more of a challenge. But they do it. They hang in there. We hear about the VA in the news all the time that sometimes our vets are not receiving or don't have access to um, the greatest care, it's not managed as well as it could be. Do they have access to um, amazing epileptologists? Are they able to get their hands on the same um, anti-epileptic drugs that the general population is has access to? Are there additional hurdles that they have to go through? Or are they are they being taken care of as as they should be? No, I am not in the Veterans Administration, so I can only tell you what I hear from the vets we've followed and taken care of. In general, they have to advocate for themselves a little bit harder. Sometimes they may live in a rural community in North Dakota, for example, and they have to travel long distances to get to care, and often when they get that care, they're not specialized. Now, there are great VA hospitals with epileptologists who are specialized or have a lot of knowledge about traumatic brain injury, and generally people will get very good care if they can get in to see them within a reasonable amount of time. That's always a challenge. Uh, there are long waiting lists uh, often at, at those VAs in particular. So it's hard, you know, it, I, they all have access to normal uh, medications that are typically used to try to treat epilepsy. But depending on where they live, depending on how long they have to wait, they can often feel like they're getting the shaft, shall we say? Mm -hmm. So uh, in, order for do, in order for them to be motivated, they have to really be advocates and assertive. I, wouldn't, they, I don't think you have to be aggressive, but you, you certainly have to be somewhat assertive. And I'm always willing to help with, that, with those assertive moves by writing letters or if I know somebody contacting somebody at the, at the VA or other healthcare system they're involved with. We, we don't get many of those, but we do get them occasionally. Uh, we get phone calls from our vets saying, can you help out? And we immediately do that. Yeah. Well, they are lucky to have you as are we lucky to have you on our show today. And so I just want to say thank you so much for, for coming out and for chatting with, chatting with me and opening my eyes to this whole other world of post-traumatic epilepsy. Well, I'm glad to hear of CURE's partnership with the Department of Defense in trying to work towards a better understanding of post-traumatic epilepsy. Every little bit helps. Doesn't it, though? Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you again, Dr. Grafman, for helping us understand how post-traumatic epilepsy can affect those with traumatic brain injuries. If you want to support veterans with post-traumatic epilepsy, go to cureepilepsy.org forward slash veterans. Your support is greatly appreciated. Also, make sure to visit at Seizing Life Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and at Seizing Life Pod on Twitter. Finally, you can sign up for information about upcoming podcasts or listen to past episodes by visiting seizinglife.org. Thanks so much. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CURE. The information contained herein is provided for general information only and does not offer medical advice or recommendations. Individuals should not rely on this information as a substitute for consultations with qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with individual medical conditions and needs. CURE strongly recommends that care and treatment decisions related to epilepsy and any other medical condition be made in consultation with a patient's physician or other qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with the individual's specific health situation.